When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. At night, the crows came back out of the fields where they ate his blood. They slept in his brain. In the morning, one crow would go. Then the others, like a flight of bombers, left him forever. What they devoured would never return. He could only dream of crows. He lost the power in his right foot so that he couldn't, um, he couldn't stand on his toes on that foot. He couldn't support his weight. And um, it gradually uh, developed into a, a limp, really, which seemed to be due to a loss of power in the foot. But um, we went to a London specialist eventually, and he said... They're very slight symptoms. There are a lot of illnesses of this nature. It probably is a neurological problem. You might have a pulsing of an, an isolated palsy on a nerve. Um, so it was all at a worrying but fairly mild level, really. It persisted at that level, really, for quite a while. Um, I thought I noticed, and George definitely noticed, that he was having a wee bit of trouble with his right hand as well, that it wasn't as strong. Over that year, things sort of escalated, but very slowly. Um, gradually, it became apparent to me that it was affecting his other foot and the other hand as well. And very rapidly, that caught up. And uh, he started tripping over and falling everywhere. And... Uh, Really, from, from that point on, I suppose the deterioration was quite rapid. Falls Road was where you fell. It wasn't only if you were a Catholic. You fell in the hall, too, on the stairs, and once in the field. And once in front of the television set, prostrating yourself as if towards Mecca, watching the news about Saddam Hussein and his crimes. In all, you fell about 14 times. You fell in the bank and were picked up by a cashier. Now, tell me, girls, how many of you have been picked up by a cashier? 
You were picked up by a policeman, too, outside a public lavatory. Your knees bruised and a mark on your arm like the dome of the rock. You fell so often you started to call the world Falls Road. Because it was there you always hurt yourself, although you survived. You fell in a bookshop once, where they knew who you were, and that was the worst. It wasn't the first, and it won't be the last. When you start to fall, it sometimes goes on quite a long time. Just uh, after Christmas that uh, year, he was so much the worse. We decided to go back to the specialist in London, who said, well, you really ought to come in for some tests. And it was then that he went into into Queen's Square in London, where the, there's a specialist hospital for neurological complaints. And he had a full set of <laughs> tests done uh, to assess his muscle power and his um, and to assess his, his the clarity of his speech. And from that, a firm but not absolutely firm diagnosis was made that it was motor neurone disease. Others are worse, of course. Jack hisses by blank-eyed in his thick, rubber-tired car. In seven months, he knows he's going to die, or thinks he is. His death is like a star he sees at night go whistling up the sky to whet a scythe, a sort of sharpening blade. All flesh is grass, and his, he's sure, is awry. We get the point. Hour after hour, we wade up to our necks in far worse puns than this. The automatic wheelchair does its turn down corridors where corners meet and kiss, and under windows where light curtains burn. Some of us walk, some of us take the strain. For Jack, the fuse is lit and burning in his brain. George was, as he always was, fairly controlled. I mean, almost resigned. I think he was... He was a fighter, really. Um... And I don't think it felt as if he'd um, had a trouble-free life and suddenly had been knocked down by an amazing uh, disaster. And I think he, he just had a history of kind of battling with things which may have looked fairly impossible to other people and had a history of getting through them as cheerfully as possible. And I wouldn't say that he coped any differently with it. I think I coped much worse. I thought, um, I don't know, that he'd just deteriorate into a sort of frightened invalid. I mean, as it happened, I was very lucky uh, that he um, he didn't do that. Even when the outside world might have seen him as that, I didn't. There are five patients I have to tell you about. Michael first, with his nid-nodding head and his love of Christian names. Jason from Bedford, who has 20 seconds warning before his attacks, time to stop the car. And Roger, who never smiles. I mean, if you were Roger, penned in a chair at the age of 32, I wonder if you would smile. Peter thinks not, painting the agile young Indian from Brixton with his left hand the only part not affected by his disease. Do you still have erections? They ask. That still, 
hovering like the blade of the guillotine. Doctors are mean, Mustafa thinks, whom they ask often while they toy with the pit of his arm. An operation, perhaps, will carry Mustafa past forty. There remains colder comfort for the others. At home now, soldering on with my limp and my cough, I remember Michael and Jason, Roger and Peter and Mustafa. Those foot soldiers in the long retreat from the Moscow of getting well. And I say a prayer. Dear God, who created the human condition and put the pain and death in the bottle, let there be scotch and water for those poor sinners who have no more hope and a shot of morphine to carry them through. I met George in Worcester. There's a festival held every year. Um, which is basically a musical festival called the Three Choirs Festival, but they have some uh, fringe events, including the occasional poet he comes to read. And this poet came and uh, came and read, and I ended up cooking the food for the party, which followed his reading, and not being allowed to go to the uh, the reading, which is, I suppose, the lot of daughters everywhere whose fathers organised literary readings. <laughs> However, he was 60 um, in January of this year and I, <laughs> I will be 29 in July. I think I have um, a perhaps quite odd ability to worry about something for a while and then completely set it aside. And I know that from reading things that I wrote in my diaries when I was first with George, I was very much possessed by the fact that if I invested myself in, you know, our sort of joint existence and went to live with him, married him, set up house with him, the very strong likelihood would be we might have a maximum of, say, 15 or 20 years together. And for some of that time, he might be ill, he might be, you know, <laughs> he might look uh, different, he might he might grow to look very old, the age difference might trouble us in, in one of the, a number of ways, but I could never really um, anticipate not being in love with him, whatever happened, and that was true, as it turned out. Um, the actual circumstances of him dying were much more extreme than I would have dared anticipate. <laughs> I think what the strange, um, the strange uh, resistance to acknowledging the likelihood of him sort of dying before me was just an acknowledgement that we had a very happy domestic life together, really very stable and I mean we operated so much as a kind of couple with shared interests. The thing we didn't share of course was age. <laughs> but, um, mm.
old friends were worst with their frightening sympathy instead of news. What's the prognosis? He's walking slower than last year. It must be terrible for you. So, make a joke. Maybe take him away for a while. I can read the tea leaves for myself. Some days he's fine, yes. I don't know, no. I don't know what I'll do if he gets worse. I mean, when, yes. One fucker was even crying. I'll do the crying, sonny boy. You stand and listen. Give me a break. Friends? I'd rather have enemies. They make me try harder. He was working on a film script. He was writing a novel. He was writing short stories. He was still writing poetry in quantity. Um, and he was trying, he was going around doing poetry readings and going to festivals. And we went to, um, I'd say two or three things a month really for a professional nature where he was he was the, <laughs> he was the performer and uh, had to appear cheerful and normal and play to the crowd as he ever had done and just just keeping himself going for that from the out, from the outsider's view seemed to keep him occupied and and I, I never sensed in him signs of depression, which I had seen earlier when I first knew him. I think he suffered irritation and frustration and annoyance and occasional tearfulness, but not depression. And apparently this is um, something quite char characteristic in motor neuron disease, that people acquire this amazing will to overcome the physical inconveniences and difficulties of the illness because the mind is kind of so almost stronger, it kind of compensates for the weakness of the body. I think I'd die but for our separate rooms. We miss each other, yes, but that can help. Illness can be presumptuous. It consumes, it leaves you beached on care like stranded kelp. We eat each other with our winsome eyes, then grow through severance towards normal chores. You try with difficulty to zip flies and grope for light switches, toe open doors. Often I dream that in a space of time it'll plateau out. A magic cure will come. I scrape through magazines, a sexual mime, helping to ease the tensions in my bum. Later there'll be real sex, an interim, then back to separate rooms. Life's pretty grim. Increasingly, our lives began to revolve around coping with motor neuron disease, but not in that sort of boring, mundane way that one might imagine uh, would be necessary. I think, uh, for example, when somebody is unable gradually to, to walk and to have access to the things which they enjoy, it becomes a real challenge to work out how you can beat the illness which is causing that. How can you, by accepting, for example, the use of a wheelchair, regain certain things that you like doing, regain the ability to not walk down a street, but get down a street, which otherwise would be impossible. So 
I think all the time we try to acknowledge the illness, but not acknowledge it as something which would stop us, but something which had to be fought, really, something which could be conquered. And I suppose George just employed his usual philosophy, which was a philosophy of effort. <laughs> and he'd had it all his life, and it stood him in very good stead for that last year, year or two. We talked an awful lot at each stage as, as subsequently things would seize up as it became obvious, for example, that his speech was affected or that he was having problems with swallowing. Obviously, the unspoken was that this was an appalling thing to be happening, but the spoken part of it never really acknowledged it as appalling. I think the way that we fought it was to to try to hold at bay that um, exasperation and just over overcome it um, whilst retaining what was good about our lives. Courage is nothing. It's not being brave that helps. They don't see that at all. It's humour, laughing, when you feel the slave of someone too demanding, tasks appall that otherwise don't matter. Making light of things, not asking, waiting, smiles, those are four do's for invalids. Be polite, say thank you, tell some jokes. All this beguiles. I know you're sick. It makes me scream with pain remembering the way you were and are. But I don't want you to show it. Let the rain of shared appliances begin, the car be mine to drive, your laughter shine through hell. Then we can stay together fairly well. The worst thing for George about the illness was undoubtedly how he perceived it as affecting my life and my image of him, and not, I think, anything he was losing for himself. I mean, I think he still felt he had his talent, which was being able to write. He had uh, domestic security. He had a wife that loved him. He had a child. Uh, he had a lovely house. He had good friends. He had a good social life. But at the same time, he felt he'd married me and he'd let me down. He felt terrible, irrational guilt. It wasn't his fault that he was ill. It wasn't his fault that he had motor neuron disease. But he felt, at a subconscious level, I think, that, that maybe he had caused it. <laughs> I think often that, that's true with people who are ill, who have to ask for help from those that love them most. They feel deeply guilty about having to ask that. And, I, and the, the sad thing is that, although in retrospect I feel I gave it willingly because I loved him and I feel that that was part of the contract between us and I, would, I knew with certainty that had I been ill, had I needed George to completely reorganise his life and his um, practical relationship with me to care for me, that he would have done that. I know he would have done that and done it probably much better than I did for him. Um, I, I, I think I um, became mildly um, schizophrenic, though not, I'm sure, in a medical sense, but um, I would oscillate between feeling, this is fine, we've beaten the damn thing, 
we're going out to dinner or um, you know here we all are um, sort of having a nice family meal together and George is in a jokey mood and we've got a lovely house or it's a sunny day I'd be responding to the good things in our life but then suddenly up would crop something deeply unpleasant <laughs> for example I mean George became incontinent for quite a few months before he died and I had to cope with that and I wasn't good at coping with it I hated coping with it I hated all the changes that that imposed on our relationship and I hated the fact that it sort of redefined me in terms of being an, a nurse really rather than his wife and that was that made me sometimes very resentful and unpleasant <laughs> mm. I worry sometimes that you might go mad when you wake up and feel my wasted hands. It makes me angry, then it makes me sad, manacled like a convict in iron bands. Your kindness hates these narrowed hands that it calms. It suffers them and shivers. If I can, and I can't often, I withdraw my palms and quit your breasts. You love another man, the one I was. I lift myself and smile and rub your back with fingers that feel strong and talk about the baby. Sometimes I'll say something stupid and you'll take it wrong. Then we both feel the ache from being one. Love isn't always a whole lot of fun. I don't think we ever talked about death in a sane way. I mean, I don't think it was... It ever came up as a... Subject for general conversation, I think we both avoided it as a general issue, but I mean, as a specific issue of George dying, yes, once we talked about it. I'm, I can't remember exactly what led me into... Um, I, th I think I must have found something like a diary of mine or a letter from when I was first with George which contained very sort of intense emotions and obviously a very, a very kind of clear um, statement of how much I was in love with him. And I think it brought to the surface many things that I was trying to deny or fight down or just uh, lessen, really. Um and just sent me into a state of extreme um, upset where I felt I had to talk to him and tell him really how, how much I loved him and how much I was devastated by the possibility of losing him. And although it sounds like, it's, it sounds like a horrible sort of... Um, an upsetting outburst. It was actually very good for us because it was, it was sort of the the single testimony really uh, that nothing nothing in me had faded. None of my feelings for him were less. They were just under acknowledged for my own self preservation. It wouldn't have been possible to. It wouldn't have been possible to lead uh, a day to day existence had I 
allowed them to come to the surface because I would just have been too traumatised and I think absolutely unbalanced by everything that was happening. Watching him fall gave her a strange feeling, like sex without love. Again and again she plugged into the baby, but its message was only milk. Silk lined the wall of her womb where they fucked in lethal silence. All those nasty mysteries in the bones of tomorrow signalled and stuck. Sorrow, they say, is a kind of paracetamol for the gentle. It dulls their pain. But the strain of being Mrs Nice Guy was too much for Pandora. She opened the box in her bowels and a knife flew up into the heart of the matter. Idle chatter will get you nowhere. He has to die sooner than planned. And, as if trepanned, a slice of her brain fell out like a golden cornice and broke on the floor where he crawled. George was so um, much my... Uh, sort of my romantic hero, really. I mean, he appeared in my life um, and consolidated so many different strands of ambitions and you know, I represented represented the sort of man I always hoped I'd be with and then suddenly he was all that still but physically completely incapacitated um, and asking certain things of me out of necessity which I disliked enough having to do for my baby <laughs> and um, it, you just can't quite survive that without feeling robbed and I mean part of me occasionally felt exasperated that here was this man who'd come and been wonderful and I'd fallen in love with him and there he still was except that he wasn't quite I couldn't have all the things I'd fallen in love with because some of them were now had had just decayed away I mean his physical his physical stance completely altered he could no longer be my lover and there was I having to change his nappy and you know that's um I think one most people are fairly slow to accommodate to that but if you've had a very powerful and good sexual relationship with somebody I think maybe your degree of resentment is considerably heightened it was certainly very strong in my case L logically I wouldn't level any accusation at George but Subconsciously, I suppose I did, really. I suppose I felt, how, how dare you be there and then not be there in the same form? How dare you change? Some days I do feel better. Then I know it couldn't come to this. It never would. I'm much the same as I was long ago when I could walk 2,000 yards and stand upright at parties chatting. When the men at petrol stations understood the words I mouth. Now it's the same as then. It isn't, though. These are the days when food falls from my grip, drink chokes me in my throat, and I'm a nervous nuisance prone to tears. The time has come when I put on my coat with fumbling fingers, grappling with my fears of God knows what. Well, I know one that's worse than all the rest. 
My wife's become my nurse. He bore the brunt of my temper. So I felt occasionally terrible, terrible guilt. And I think I felt guilt which I should have felt because I felt guilt at being bad-tempered with somebody who was coping extraordinarily well in the face of terrible adversity. And I was still capable of being cruel to that person and being selfish and um, being resentful for something that they couldn't help. I, I think I just have to live with that. I mean, it fades gradually because I suppose I gradually see it in the context of a highly traumatic existence. And I realise that it contained no defection on my part. It, I, I never lost that sense that I was George's wife and that I would look after him whatever happened. But on a day-to-day -day level, I suppose I became a less pleasant person to live with, a more irritable person, a less, less calm, less jokey. <laughs> it's something which I only dare to um, reflect on in small doses because I was... Um, falling short of personal standards that I would set myself in how one treats one's family occasionally, but in my eyes, drastically enough. Um, drastically enough to feel embarrassed about even now, and certainly at the time to feel, you know, occasional very, very powerful remorse over. But I think George always forgave me, and I don't think... I don't. I had no sense that it was permanently affecting him, except that he became even kinder to me. There are nights when I think of euthanasia. Nights when I watch television, dreaming of running for a bus again. Nights when it all seems just like yesterday, except for the stiffness in my joints. Roll on, cataclysm. Let someone else have it. Lung cancer blow up in Armagh, lose his daughter in a car crash. Join the club. I'm sick of being alone in the wheelchair dream. The brakes fail. You can't get away from the mugger. I have to stand or choke. It dissolves, though. There are mornings when I wake fairly cheerful. I rise and manage to shave. Not so bad. I look out and it's raining. The cows don't look so good either. I get downstairs, eat some breakfast... I read a book or the papers. Maybe they'll find a cure. Pigs might fly. Ironic laughter can make you choke on a blood pressure pill. It's a joke. There's no pain, so you can't be ill. I laugh. I go on laughing. Remember, you laugh and the world laughs with you. Laughter in paradise. Laughter in hell. I mean, when he, uh, in the last few months, became impotent, he was very deeply worried, I think, that I would feel sort of sexually unfulfilled and, and worried by that and said to me, you know, if you ever meet anybody that you want to sleep with, you can just bring them back to the house and they can live here, provided you don't um, exclude me and provided they would be my friend. And I mean, it just seemed to me such an extraordinary thing to be able to offer. 
considering everything else that he was going through, considering that I think he had a license to be the most <laughs> um, the most selfish and obnoxious person during those months, had he wanted to be and still be forgiven by me. To be able to say that was, I think, a sign of um, a true sort of heroism, really. The baby was actually conceived the last time we made love ever. <laughs> and it was and it was and it came after months of my withdrawing emotionally to a degree, as I've said before, to I think safeguard myself um from the feeling of being so powerfully in love with somebody that I thought I would inevitably lose at that stage. Um and the, at the occasion that I spoke of, when I became very overpoweringly aware of how much George was continuing to mean to me, um, resulted in my conceiving this child. So it seems uh, almost like a, a magical thing. It almost seems like something um, designed to bring me through. <laughs> Knowing that you are coming, and quite soon, I sense the glory of the world unchanged. The sun keeps rising. Sometimes even the moon comes up as if a birth has been arranged. It has. Not more than seven months away, you wave to me across the skinny hill where, bean-like, you grow strong. What must we pay for something so conducing to goodwill? Is there a price for what the cold stars bring and lay in screaming wonder at our feet? Some barter for our unformed gathering that grows to raw flesh in the womb's white heat? I think there is. An invoice for our joy, whether you be my daughter or a boy. He was very pleased. He didn't ever say, of course, this is great, I'm leaving you with something so positive if I should die. I'm sure he realised that though, now, although I wouldn't have sort of dwelt on that or dared to name the possibility of it while he was alive. For a couple of nights, George had a lot of trouble in sleeping. I mean, he, his sleep was often disturbed just by the difficulty of getting comfortable because he was all bones and no flesh at that stage and also had muscles which would sort of go into cramps and spasms and just generally it's, it's hard to find a comfy position. But he was worse than usual. He'd had a cold, which is what I was thinking probably had affected his ability to sleep because it was affecting his, it was obviously affecting his breathing. He had a worse cough than usual and he was quite laboured in his breathing. But um, by sort of Sunday night, he hadn't really slept for two or three nights and was very, very anxious and became <laughs> somewhat sort of grumpy and preoccupied by it as one would really losing sleep like that. 
and um, finally I I realized that I wasn't going to be able to get him to sleep despite trying absolutely everything and I became a bit alarmed and called out the doctor at about sort of 12 o'clock at night and um, I went into the hospital with George he lived for uh, the whole of that week without sleeping and increasingly not able to eat or swallow and um, being given absolutely no assistance with his ang with the anxiety and the sleeplessness and, and terror at that stage and uh, I discharged him I still never said he's dying I never actually used those words to myself not really and um, and I just kept thinking if I could get some sedation for him he'd be able to sleep you see I hadn't slept at all because I'd been nursing him at night and so I was a bit confused really all I could think the only sensible thought I could have was he's got to go to sleep <laughs> he's got to go to sleep I don't care what else um, you just become you become like a kind of <laughs> bit of an automaton really so I just I just went through the motions. I came back, I made up the bed, I made the fires up, we put him to bed, I got the doctor, I made some tea for everyone. And um before they gave him the shot of uh, sedative, he he asked me a couple of questions. Although I mean he wasn't really speaking because he'd lost his voice by then, but he spelled them out. I made him an alphabet. <laughs> on a piece of paper and he just sort of pointed at the letters to ask me what he wanted and he spelled out are there any side effects to this it was like a kind of unspoken confidence really between us I felt he was saying I've had enough I've got to go now really <laughs> and the fact that I said to him there aren't any side effects it'll just make you sleep which is true, I suppose, that's what it was doing and that's what he wanted at that stage and that's what I wanted for him and then he just said, how long will I sleep for? <laughs> and that, that was the last thing that he said to me and I said, until you're better <laughs> and then, um, I suppose a few hours later he died A touch of Larkin and a stroke of pain. A trace of Henley and a smear of grief. The fearful stick to Alistair MacLean, a book on spiders or the barrier reef. The brave attempt the Bible or some Freud. Analyses of madness and of death and afterlife projections as the void. Not many, though, are fit for late Macbeth and his doom-laden scenes, predestined woe. Most prefer television. World news from somewhere everyone would like to know after a convalescing luxury cruise. Hawaii, the Bahamas, Tenerife. 
Autumn, though, goes on falling sear leaf by leaf. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.